Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balaki, talk to writers about writing. Very often, those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show, or it's a rejoinder episode, which this is. Charlene Ellsby, PhD, is a data analyst and former philosophy professor. Her previous books include Hexus, Psychros, Musos, and Bedlam, as well as many academic works. She's on this month for the third time to talk about her new book, Through Clash. It's called Violent Faculties, and it's very good. If you would like to help out writing the rapids, you can do so in a couple of different ways. Patreon.com slash NoisemakerJoe for only two bucks a month. You can get episodes a little bit earlier than everybody else. Also, I have a novel. It's called Tired. It's out through Alien Buddha Press, and you can find it on Amazon. Also, an excerpt from that book was just published among a whole bunch of other people in an anthology through Soyos Books called Unheimlich, and I'm pretty sure that's on Amazon too. Do some Googling. I believe in you. Now, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Charlene. Okay, so let's start out with uh, the little note at the front. The author's note. Submitted in partial fulfillment of the requirements toward application for tenure and promotion within the Department of Philosophy as evidence of research productivity. Um, I don't... This this question that I'm going to ask in regard to that is purely out of... Uh, of ignorance and isn't meant to like imply anything about academia or you or anything. Is that for real? <laughs> it's a reference to a real thing. I did not submit this book. Okay. As evidence of my research productivity, but I mean, if you submit a tenure application, you have to demonstrate your research capacity right. and, you know, with, publications or whatever the science people do sure. um so yeah we were uh making this book academically accurate and i'm like slam that author's note in there sure because yeah. there is there's an appendix and there's an editor's note there at the end too so um and there's footnotes throughout there there are uh mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm the type of stuff that I read for this show, like it really could have gone either way. <laughs> um, uh, the case, you know, the reality of the book being what it is, I really enjoy that conceit, right? Like the the idea of making the book object itself, um, making the reality of the book bleed into our reality a little bit. I think that's that's maybe part of the reason why like house of leaves is scary um for some people and like the animorphs books as a kid said like these are our stories they are real they don't want you to know what they are and like even lolita's just like this is my journal guys i'm j i'm some weirdo in prison here's my journal um yeah i like that i like that i like uh that conceit a whole lot so i'm glad that you did that um yeah, thanks. I mean, the only example I can think of offhand that I found really frustrating was the Celestine Prophecy. Okay. So I don't know what uh -huh. that is, so I'll have to look that up later. It was, uh, it's like a self-help book about a guy who 
goes traveling and he finds some prophecies and um it was supposed to be um it was given to me mm. by actually someone who appears in the devil thinks i'm pretty uh she was the other waitress at the restaurant and she gave this to me and she said i have an old soul and so i read this book thinking it contained wisdom and it kept referring to the prophecies the prophecies the prophecies and it's like okay where are the prophecies are nowhere in this book and uh i went and asked them online because it was the early 2000s and they had a website for the book and I'm like hey people from the book where are the prophecies you keep talking about and they're like read the book wow i love that <laughs> <laughs> that makes me so delighted i uh that is something i would have done at the time uh <laughs> The other, the other one I think I think is the movie The Poughkeepsie Tapes, which is like a found footage alien abduction movie that was I think presented as real at the time that people got pretty offended about. I feel like, um, yeah, it's a good it's a good way to frame an art piece. I love it. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is. Um, and I never looked it up. I never went to my bookshelf and pulled the book. One of the short stories in um, Clive Barker's Books of Blood, uh, Violent Faculties, reminded me of that, where they some guys kidnap a, like a, a vegetarian girl, and the only thing they give her to eat is like raw meat, and they're just like, let's see how long her morals hold out, or whatever. Um, <laughs> but fun. Yeah. I'll go read. One of the so I like a book or two before I read violent faculties, I had read Spinoza's ethics and um, I'd never really read something like that before. That's like written in geometric proofs. Um, yeah. And it was really, you know, I had taken geometry in seventh grade or something. So like I'm aware of what a proof is, but I definitely had to look up some of the terms and, and, don't ask me if I agree with Spinoza because I I don't know if I know exactly what he was talking about all the time. But um, I like the idea of watching someone go about something um, rationally uh, just based off of axioms that I don't accept. I think mm -hmm. that's probably why I like Western esotericism so much and like medieval Christianity with all like the demons and stuff because it's like you're working off of a framework that is outside of me, but I can see the thought process you're using and the thought process works. Yes. Um, and so violent oh. faculties is, is fun to watch that. That's exactly how I used to explain philosophy grading to the students. Mm. And you know, they're all, their question always was like, Hey professor, do we have to agree with you to get a good grade? And I'm like, you can think wrong things and still make a coherent argument. And most of the work goes in following through from your beginnings through a series of inferences to the conclusion. And if you do that well, fuck yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Is it's that the between people and their worldviews is just a different set of, set of starting premises 
yeah i mean i think some people just like have have bad logic <laughs> so <laughs> like well yeah. that's the other cut <laughs> i i think that's one of the interesting things of like watching somebody especially with like political views i don't agree with um do what to me looks like cognitive dissonance or mental mm -hmm. gymnastics and watch them make it make sense um yes as a as a writer that is inspiring um from like a character design sort of way until you know the the reality brain kicks in and you're like wait no that's a real person who's really registered to vote <laughs> right something that's super frustrating in real life but for violent faculties i adopted it on purpose yeah <laughs> um because fiction fiction and i don't have to adhere to the rigorous rules of logic yes thank god no, no, no. thank god um and i i think with with the that sort of thing in mind a lot of the things that made me very uncomfortable about um psychros that are mirrored here with regard to like the female protagonist and sort of how she responds to patriarchy and how she treats random men um didn't make me feel as uncomfortable in violent faculties because i got it right like i i, I kind of understood how her brain was working um and i was like oh, okay yeah so that's why you would think that um because you're not like working off of the same set of you know metaphysics that i'm working off of or whatever like She's gone a bit twisted. Yeah. She doesn't, she doesn't necessarily, like she understands systems, but she like can separate the individual from systems, but not in the way that matters. Um, which was nice. Like, you know, I think, uh, that's why, why it helps to iterate on ideas as a writer. And so that the reader can, can figure things <laughs> out later. Yeah. That was one of the things that El Nash, El Nash edited that book. Mm. Um, and yeah, there were criticisms throughout. It's like, you know, if, if this, this theoretical basis of this experiment doesn't exactly make sense. And uh, she was talking about the, the kill shots chapter. So I had to mm. go back and revise the twisted philosophy so that it at least made a sick kind of sense. Right. Mm hmm. I like that. Got line. It's got to cohere. It can't be implausible. Right. It's got to be plausibly twisted, right? Mm -hmm. And then I don't know how much it adheres as we get to the end. Um, but maybe it does. I don't know. Like when she starts thinking that she's God, I wonder how sound the, the logic is, right? Mm. That's just the end game of Platonic philosophy. Right. Divorce the material form and become pure thought. Mm. If we could just become the forms, everything would be okay, right? Yeah, just join up with the monad. It's all good. Um, Love that. Yeah. Um, I'm really particularly enjoyed the first um experiment 
the space in which Emily was. Um, that's one of the, there's a kind of overall, this book does a lot of, um, presents a lot of examples that help me illustrate to myself the things I like about philosophy as a academic endeavor. Um, and like the space in which Emily was is a, is a really good example for that. Like how language does things and how we do things with language and like metaphorical meanings and literal meanings and making the metaphorical literal. Um, I haven't read Wittgenstein, so I'm sure there's a lot that like I could gain from that. Um, but yeah, like I like that idea of like how much space do you physically take up? How much space do you take up in your mind? What spaces do you use? Um, a couple months before reading Violent Faculties, I read The Poetics of Space too. So like I was also like I was really primed for the for the space discussion and just like that's a thing that I've been thinking about myself, um, kind of in the same way as in the chapter, just you know with a little bit more healthy maybe, of like. What does it mean to take up space? Are you taking away space from other people if you take up more space? So is space finite? The space of attention? That sort of thing. Yeah. Yes, you're taking it. You're taking it from other people who might use that space, but you took it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's... Yeah, that's got to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can trace it back etymologically and find, you know, some Latin root somewhere that explains the connection sometimes it remains a mystery yeah um is that something that um oh in our first discussion who do we talk about merlot ponty yes and i have two of his books now <laughs> i ordered one immediately after we finished talking and then later found another one in a used bookstore so i now have two of his books that i've i've yet to read but is that something he talks about Yes, you need to read the chapter about the body in the phenomenology of perception. Okay. It is all about how the body is described as an I can. It is the thing I use to get the things I want done, done. And it is over and above what he calls the objective body, mm. which is the thing that people see, mm -hmm. right? That is not how I experience my own body. Right. I have to imagine external perceptions to look back at myself in order to think of it that way. And it's an abstraction. It's not how, it's not how I live. Right. But when I'm just experiencing my own body, I don't notice it as much. It becomes a tool that you just automatically use that you don't think about, like how you don't think about where the keys on the keyboard are when you're doing it. Right. And he would go so far as to say that, yeah, common tools that we use to get things done become part of our habit body. Mm. The thing that we use without thinking about it, the automatic process that happens where I just... And it's contrary to the other philosophers who just want to explain it as, well, you're doing these calculations, but you're just doing them really fast. And his counter argument is, no, you're just not thinking about it because those automatic processes just become part of your being. Okay. And now you are, what, what you are is a compendium of habits and abilities and also limitations because like you learn 
how to walk through doors without hitting them. Right. Right. Oh, that's exciting. So whatever it is that that is, (laughs) whatever that like, oh, the first time we talked, we talked about how kind of you're you in a more concrete way than me but me too sort of like we're interested in science and then but it was like but but no but really but like how does a leaf know to be green like i get chlorophyll and photosynthesis but like but how the green and like uh when i see like like what you were just talking about and other things kind of in in philosophy where something happens there um that like that's so exciting to me there's like there's like a i don't know i have like an i can only describe it like apophatically or something it's it's bizarre but but that's what's you know it's the draw um i want to i want to talk about how like new agey people talk about how language is spell casting and so like I see every once in a while because of the esoteric stuff I watch on YouTube every now and again I'll get something way out there because the algorithm will just be like ah what about this white person with dreadlocks um and you know there's all that like so they make us talk like this so that they can control us right because the language is the perception and so if we say i don't know body rather than vessel then we think about ourselves in a certain way different than if we referred to our bodies as vessels and um like okay it's it's easy to make fun of those people because i i think that they've like only just discovered what like synonyms are but also I kind of like that line of thought and like to dig around in there a little bit. Yeah, I was totally there. I just uh, wonder if they have the vocabulary they need to describe what they're trying to get at. I feel like they're getting at something Mm -hmm. intuitively. And yeah, yeah, you look at religious people and think, okay, you also might be getting at something, but what you're saying is not getting it there. Right. Uh Huh. And that's that's pretty much me all of the time. <laughs> so I know there's I know there's something in there and I'm trying to say it, but god damn it if I can't figure it out. Um that's how I ended up in philosophy. Right, cuz you're just where is the vocabulary? Who has the vocabulary? Well, these people the say phenomenologists too. Yeah. Who can Merleau-Ponty does. Um, I, speaking of the kill shots chapter, um, I really appreciated the, uh, the kill them because they're humans section. Um, not because I agree with it. Um, but just every now and again, I like the idea of like retreading an idea that is taken for granted with like the new ideas that we've developed since then. Right. Like, um, I don't know. I feel, I feel like a lot of heck, even the guy who wrote the introduction to the copy of ethics I read, who was like, Oh yeah, he's pulling on Buddhism here. 
right? And like, just like the idea of like, okay, well, we have all of these new schools of philosophy now, so let's like go back and apply. Um, but I also just like the idea of like looking at whether or not humans are all that special. Well, if you're going to be an iconoclast, you got to go back and question everything, every premise that people just take for granted. And like the whole foundation of ethics is supposed to be that like, you know, humans are worthy beings and, you know, there's, we shouldn't harm them. And that's just taken as a fundamental premise without which the discipline couldn't exist. Mm -hmm. At which point we always have to ask the question, is it a good premise? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that maybe what I, I was thinking of is like, because because this person is working off of axioms that are so wildly contrary to popular thought, then yeah, you would necessarily say, okay, your entire structure of thought is weird. Um, and just because you have thousands of years of scholarship built upon Plato and Aristotle doesn't mean that they were right, that either of them were right. Um, and so if we assume that they're wrong, where do we go from there? Uh, and that's, well, it's just a thought exercise to take everything you've ever thought and think, well, what if it weren't, what if it's not that though? Right. So you as a person, as a philosopher, as a writer, after mm -hmm. writing violent faculties, do you find uh, that you have changed certain ideas that you had previously held to be sort of for granted or, mm. or are you deeper in your sort of framework of ethics golly i wouldn't say it changed me it is an experiment but it's something yeah that i recommend everybody do all the time mm. question everything it was really fun to be able to run with that and actually develop the consequences of what if this were true and then especially how could we test it yeah uh, that requires some suspension of disbelief mm -hmm. because i mean there's a reason that actual academic philosophy is technical and takes hundreds of pages to spell out little tiny points mm -hmm. and it uh doesn't get around to the murdery parts. So in order to get to the violence, you have to kind of go with her on this journey of speculative reasoning. And it was fun. I don't think it changed me. Um, it's confusing, right? Because when you write something for a long time and you identify with that character right you write from their point of view you want to defend them mm -hmm. you want to think that they're a very reasonable person and then someone in the dms the other day was like obviously she's psychotic right and my first reaction was how dare you say that about her <laughs> but then remembering all the murders mm -hmm. i was like okay yes she must be right but there's that little bit of when we empathize with someone, even a character, 
we don't want to think badly about them. Like mm -hmm. we get attached. We want to think well of people we know. Uh, so yeah, I think we can empathize with the terrible. Sure. So, yeah, I I think that I mentioned Lolita earlier, and yeah. one one of like for the for the mythical YouTube video essay channel, one of one of like my hot take ideas is like here's the real reason why Lolita is such a dangerous book. And it's dangerous just because Humbert Humbert is like can be easy to fall into his trap. Even though throughout the entire book, especially at the beginning, he spells out like I did this to this girl's mother so that she would trust me so that I could be in their house so that I could get to his daughter. And forever after that, he's doing the same thing to you, the reader. But you're just like, I don't know, man. He's writing in first person. He's talking about what he did. You know, I can see like so many people. And maybe this is just because people pretend to read the book and have only watched the movies or something. But like people will be like, well, yeah, she was flirting back with him. And like nowhere in the text is that evident except for what he says. Right. Like if you look at the actions of the characters in that book she is constantly disgusted by him like at no point does she show any interest in him whatsoever and like after they are together she is like very mean to him the whole time um like i don't know it's the same sort of people who think that 500 days of summer is a movie about something that it's not about but yeah yeah read it and you believe it mm -hmm. because he told me Right. He told me. Yeah. Um, Says something about us as people that we just generally tend to believe what pe what we're told. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's the path of least resistance because then I don't have to go back point by point throughout the entire novel and be like, this thing you told me is false based on this page and this page and this page. Mm -hmm. um, oh, what's the term? There's a a series on YouTube called the alt-right play playbook that has a whole bunch of short videos talking about how right-wing people argue, do their sophistry on the internet. And one of the things is like the gish gallop, I think it's called where it's like, I'm going to make 10 really clearly false claims. And if you only refute nine of them convincingly, then I just follow the one that you didn't. And so it's really exhausting to, you know, get up on stage on a presidential debate and be like, okay, so in that two minutes, I'm going to need 20 minutes to disprove what you just said in two minutes. And I know I only have two minutes too, so I'm just going to like pick one thing and then you'll just hammer home at the other things. Yeah. You just uh, kind of lose faith in humanity when you realize that not too many beliefs are based on actual reasoning and you can actually watch someone scream their way into being right. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh -huh. yeah. And then it's okay. Maybe, maybe with critical thinking courses and, you know, practice and just constant vigilance, we can maybe have rational humans. And then by the time we do, they just die and fresh ones come out and they're being convinced of other things. Right. 
Well, yeah, so you have to do intense critical thinking and make that part of the habit body <laughs> so that so that you just do all the critical thinking without thinking about it so that you can know what is true a lot quicker, a lot easier. Well, that's what Aristotle th says, too, is that like virtues are things you have to practice at, like you have to constantly choose to to do the thing. And that's what makes it virtuous is your like constant yes doing of it it becomes, it becomes joe a hexus ah, the title like the book that yes <laughs> that is what it becomes when you do it enough times is a hexus i really enjoyed the footnotes i like i want to just make a reading list based off of the footnotes i think that's a good place to start i didn't have that many until I sent it to Clash and Kristoff came back to me and like, make it more academic, add more footnotes. Mm. Yes, boss. I could do that. I don't know if that's going to make it more popular of a book. I mean, they're easy but, enough to ignore if that's your jam. I'm, yeah. I'm more of a footnote than an endnote person, but for you, I did it. I flipped back and forth. <laughs> I did all that work to flip three pages back and forth several times. Oh um, yeah, because you got the arc in the in the final version. They're footnotes. Oh, good. I like footnotes too. Good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I've skipped over a lot of endnotes in my day. Yeah, that's so easy to. Um, good. Oh, I'm just I'm just delighted. Uh, <laughs> good, good job, everybody else. You got you. it. Um, I'm interested in the, because you've written so much at this point, um, the, the sort of editing process with other people, and maybe, mm -hmm. maybe this comes from a academia too, that like, how, do you eat? I want to ask, like, do you view that as just part of the writing? But I don't know if I, I like posing it that way. I don't know if that's satisfying to me. But just like, you know, to the point where you've written a novel and it feels like it's pretty done and then you hand it to an editor and then you hand it to your publisher and um, you get all this input that you may or may not have to add in there. I mean, you're not working for a big five here that's gonna like make you change crucial elements but yeah i don't know yeah editing is where i fix everything i fucked up mm. I fuck up a lot joe i make typos i change names things happen that didn't happen later and writing a book takes a while sometimes sometimes and i will forget what happened or if I said something already, I will repeat myself and use the same feeling or situation again later on. So I definitely need to read something after I've written it. As far as other people go, I like to, I mean, it depends. Depends on the person, what they're gonna say about it. I always have the option not to, right? You always have the option not to make the edits.